0: Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Here at Below the Line, we're continuing our Oscar series of film professionals discussing the nominees in their categories of expertise. We're kicking off the second half of the season with cinematography, and I'm excited to welcome returning guests. First, director of photography and director Patrick Cady. Whose credits include Girlfight, Bosch, and the spin-off Bosch Legacy. Patrick, welcome back.
1: Thank you so much. Happy to be here.
0: Next, David Tutman, affectionately known as Tut. Tut, you're a New York-based cinematographer and director whose credits include Wu-Tang American Saga, Girls on the Bus, and you're prepping now on for the second season of The Night Agent. Glad you could join us.
2: It's very good to be here and see you guys.
0: Well, I'm glad to see you both. Now, for listeners, these guys have storied careers, and you can learn more about them at imdb.com. Go to the website, search for Below the Line, and find this episode. From there, you can click on the names of my guests. Let's get into it. The 2023 nominees for cinematography are El Conde, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are possible, so consider this a warning. One note worth repeating while recognizing our below the line compatriots by name. I occasionally mispronounce some of them. Patrick and Tut, please correct me if you notice I get any wrong. Let's start things off with El Conde cinematography by Edward Lockman.
1: I mean, come on. I I just, I always can't wait whenever he shoots something to see what he does. And um, holy cannoli. I mean, I I'm in love with this photography and I, you know, Ed's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) it's it's the um what's interesting to me is all these movies have moments that are super graphic and and kind of sear in your brain and some of them are in like tiny conference rooms and then some of them are uh, (laughs) a pinochet floating (laughs) over the ocean and um and then as cinematographers i think we probably both do this thing where you start really paying attention to this, the smaller scenes where it's just people talking or people in a room, you know, the, the storytelling stuff that we all have to deal with. And, um, I just loved some of the gray on gray sense of things in that weird house. And, you know, the, not necessarily the home run shots, the ones you really remember, but all the, just the subtlety of how he deals with light on a human face is pretty, um, humbling (laughs) for me. It's a pretty darn
2: beautiful movie, I, I will say. Yeah. And, uh, and adventurous in his approach and, and doing things. And to I, I don't know him. I've heard such great things about him in New York over the years. Um, but his, his willingness to take technical adventures is pretty darn special. Um, I, this movie, I was really intrigued by his desire to transplant a, a monochrome sensor into a camera that had never been done with before.
1: Oh, I don't know and, about uh, this.
2: Yeah, he um he took us he took a sensor from um, an Alexa XT and he moved it. it he had Ari put it into an Ari Mini LF uh, because the XT was too large for what he was hoping to do. So, you know, just the size and heaviness. And um, they got it to him two weeks before they started to shoot. And uh, you know he was he was thrilled because um, of the stretch in the mid ranges that the bigger you know sensor got him. Um, and the, I, I, there was truly a real payoff there's a delicacy in this movie as well as just the, the starkness of black and white the, the midtones are incredible to me you yeah know, it's, it's it, it, that it has, like
1: middle ire section seems all stretched out it's beautiful
2: yeah it, it's almost like it's black and white color in black and in white but not the transliteration from shooting color it it has a gradation which you wouldn't see otherwise it feels like um
1: yeah especially the sky up in a bunch of those shots where you kind of see the sky grade grade up and it doesn't feel like it was imposed it feels like they got it that way
2: yeah yeah It was a, a great adventure and uh i mean the movie's a trip I, a couple of these movies are real trips in all honesty and, uh, and this one definitely um it takes you there with Visually, the contrast, the sensitivity like there's this one crazy, I I saw it a while ago, but there's this one wide shot, which is kind of they're walking across this very dark, kind of cavernous place with just two sconsy lanterns lanterns on the side. But the amount of stuff you get out of that, the starkness of the darkness and the darkness of characters, you know, versus this, this amazing ability to capture the most delicate of lights. It was real, that was really neat to me.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And um, thinking about us talking this about this this morning, I went to bed last night thinking about the challenge that we often face to try to make something look like we didn't do anything, and and how complicated that can get. You know, the audience might see a single light source, um, but we know there's all these little skips and fills and things in the deep background and something to catch their eye and the downside. And, you know, um, and with Ed, I, I just don't, you don't feel where it's coming from. And when you do, it feels random enough that it feels like the world. Like, you know, that's, I think a great cinematographer somehow managed to pull that off. I also pictured the trickiness of a nuanced
2: movie like this visually, um, with working in a foreign land. And I don't know how well Ed speaks Spanish, but you know, he was, he, he was shooting with a Chilean crew, and um, I, I've shot and I've shot with foreign, you know, in other countries with with native crews, and um, it's really fun. But there's a whole other level of energy that comes with it—the translation and 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 maybe happy accidents ensue because of that too, which which lends to what you're saying in terms of providing things on a less. Um, designy quality i guess
1: right Uh, i always what i love about that is it somehow always reverts to for me at least to hand gestures and sound effects (laughs) (laughs) i need and then a little (laughs) it's
2: true it's all it all adds to the magic um other technical things that really interested me here Ed decided to use 1930s Baltar vintage lenses. So the bokeh in shots is really incredible. The fall off, everything, you know, it, he wanted it to emulate um, Touch of Evil and the Magnificent Ambersons in a way. You know, he, he there was very visually to me, I was reminded of Touch of Evil a lot when watching this movie. Yeah. And part of that, I think, is the Ultra uh, Baltars. Yeah. You know, and the Balt- and the vintage baltars. He took some new ones and, and aged them as well in order to match it up. And um I think it really played well for this movie.
1: And and he I, I also feel like he had to watch some Bergman too, because the, the faces, especially the the young nun who comes into the story, there are there are moments and it's because she's dressed as that particular nun too. It might make you think of Bergman, but I, I was like, Oh, that is there's nothing in that frame that is a hundred percent black or a hundred percent white. And I love everything about it. <laughs> yeah.
2: Really well done.
1: Yeah. Um, the other thing, which was
2: interesting, I now it's called the EL zone system for exposure. Oh, yeah. And I wonder whether that's the Ed Lachman zone system. But, it is, you know, you're right. But it's a whole way, um, this is more technical talk, but, but I'm a big fan of, of false color. It's called when monitoring
1: you and me, you and me both. I, I, I'm actually, there's a really interesting article about the CL system where it falls apart on newer sensors because the sensors are wider than the system. Wow. So like the, the new um, Alexa 35, if you look at their spec sheet, you're supposed to put, Oh my God, skid we're going we're going to go deep (laughs) um you're you're supposed to put mid-gray at i think 32 or something ire and they've expanded it in that section of the sensor um and so you can run out of the zone system and i feel like i stopped carrying my digi spot because i've got a colored one that shows me everything everywhere
2: exactly i i mean the, the, this is a little this is a funny aside it's not about the movie but i only use a light meter anymore honestly in the first couple of weeks of a job because it's actually a badge to get into close pro- personal proximity with an actor you're kind of
1: yeah it's really smart know,
2: with the meter you're there for your purposes and for their benefit as well and it's a great way of um getting into a close enough space for quiet conversations early on a job to get to know your actors. That's my biggest (laughs) use of a
1: meter. You should tell that to every class you ever guest speak at. I think that's wonderful advice. The other thing I do is, or did, um, was, uh, I, I call it the, um, uh, you know, the Alton, an Alton test where I move a light. If I can get the cast ahead of time, I move a light all the way around their face with them looking in different directions. And that's a great time for them to realize you're going to take care of them. And also to have conversations about whatever. And, and I'm shocked at how few actors have had it done before.
0: (laughs) So the trade, I had a question for you guys on this film. There's a few times where visual effects are actually really important to the story. I think the floating over the city and there's some wire work towards the end, Wait. but, but it's pretty subtle. That was fact. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about as the cinematographer, when that is so critical and yet it's not really a visual effects movie on that level. Like what sort of relationship you think you had or what kind of extra control over those moments are important for your craft?
1: To me, it's all about having those initial conversations and and, and it gets, it gets right to what was just saying about using the meter is every new collaboration, if it's with someone you haven't worked with before is about them hoping you're going to respect their craft and you hoping they're going to respect your, your own craft. And, and as soon as you can establish that trust where you're not going to blow them off when they're like, please try to make the green screen or blue screen or whatever they're using as smooth as possible. Or they say, it doesn't matter. We're going to end up bro everything anyway. Um, But to have those conversations about, okay, well, the, you know, we're always fighting the same things. Like we want, can we know what the plate is before we shoot the person that's going to go in front of the plate? Like it's these very right? It's these really super simple things that become because you're constantly on the lookout for um what what's going to make the audience know it's not real, despite the fact it's someone floating over. The clouds, and of course, it's not real. But you don't want anything in their brain to say, like, "Well, that wasn't photographed one hundred percent there." And there's, and it's these tiny little things, and you're you're counting on your years of experience and and being able to have a gut reaction. It's um, it's that uh, it's that book, Blink, right?
0: That you have enough experience that you can trust your gut. Yeah, when you see something new, you kind of have to. Yeah,
1: and and the
2: other part of it to me is is Particular, it's it's a technical art form. And one of the things we as cinematographers are responsible for in, in an effect shot like that is um, is that exchange and conversation with our effects specialists. Um, and part of what we're doing is um, most importantly, we're there to provide the consistent look of what the show is, but we're also there to provide technically the pieces of assemblage which work. And the trick of that is each each effects house, each effects person has often, will have a different opinion as to what's required. Uh, I've had green screen requests where uh, the, the green screen should be shot a stop below exposure. I've had other people request that it's a stop and a half above exposure. So as those conversations happen over a career, you start realizing that there's no one rule, which allows it to fall back into your cinematographic world of whimsy to a degree, while, while being confined with knowing that you have to make that technical side of the effect work so that people don't think about the process when watching.
0: Well, this film was a bit of a sleeper. I remember adding it to my Netflix list when it came out, but then until it got this, it's sole Oscar nomination. I hadn't really thought about it that much until it came around, but it sounds like Ed Lockman's reputation as a cinematographer, he might've been part of the cinematography conversation In ways that i didn't notice is that what you guys think leaned into this or does this film come as a surprise to you as well
1: well to me it's interesting i think the asc awards are a dead match to these nominations and and both of these categories get nominated by cinematographers and then they get voted on at the asc only by cinematographers but then in the academy by any member of the academy who has any thought about anything in their head so I've always find it interesting in years where the ASC award is different than the Oscar because because one is filmmakers and the other is cinematographers only. Um, And so it doesn't surprise me that he got nominated because I think fellow DPs see what he's doing and they want to see what he's done. (laughs) (laughs)
2: one last technical note for this too with that the um one of the reasons they went with the smaller body was a majority of the movie was shot on a 15 foot technocrane, crane which um oh that was, makes a
1: bunch of sense
2: doesn't it and yeah. and it, it's a i i keep on talking I, I i mean i work tv and it'll never happen more than likely unless i'm on some uh some next level of succession or something in terms of budget but the notion i think it's it's I can't imagine a better piece of equipment to do a movie like that with than that, that crane, you know, yeah. the, 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 the flexibility, the speed of setup, all those things. Uh, it, 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 really, it, it explained to me a lot about how it was possible to, to accomplish this movie.
0: Give our non cinematographers a sense of what it means to have that kind of flexibility you're talking about. Well,
2: within, within 15 seconds, you can get your camera to a position that's two inches above the ground or 13 feet above the ground. You can, you can move the camera in and out without laying track. You can put a head on it that allows the camera to rotate, you know, on, on three axes, not just two. Um, you know, so, so it, it, it immediately provides you with um, a tool that's rough, a little bigger than a, a hybrid Dolly, but gives you a ton of flexibility right off the bat. That's how I would say it.
1: Yeah, the thing I always think about is, um, you know, Roger Deakins has been doing a version of this for a very long time—a single camera on a small arm. And and when you watch the films he shoots, I I, I remember that that moment in No Country where he's sit, sitting on the bed waiting for Sugar to come down the hall, and the camera just goes right over the corner of the bed. I think it was I maybe caught it like you know the fifth time I watched the movie, but the camera can go; it's not limited by having something under it. So now you can start going over tables and around corner, you know, over corners and things like that. And, and move in the way, if you're having a conversation with someone across the long table, but you start focusing on what they're saying, you're, you mentally are pushing in, but now you can do it. And it's without, and if it's just living on it, then it just becomes the way you start working.
0: We're going to move on to the second film on our list killers of the flower moon cinematography by rodrigo prieto
2: i guess i'll start off with a little of the technical um this was a movie primarily shot 35 millimeter but also used a sony venice with the oc OC ocnxt uh look which is their high definition high high latitude look um at 4k anamorphic they shot both those cameras um the, the venice was used for low light situations and dusk rodrigo prieto was able to extend dusk by using as sensitive a camera as that and uh and they used it for a bunch of night work as well uh but the workhorse was uh was a film camera Ari, the aricam st and they had an lt as well for handheld and steadicam um and uh the the you know they used they used the film to great. They use film to great advantage for the richness of terrain and, uh, and I have to say, it's not a cinematographic um, issue. But um, although we we capture all of it, um, the the art direction and wardrobe work on this, the costuming on this movie were absolutely outstanding. I thought, and um, and really enrich the the quality of the photographic images pretty much at all times. Uh, I was really impressed with with this movie for that um, that cooperation amongst departments aside from anything. The grand vision came through, I think, pretty darn nicely. Um, They used different lookup tables, different LUTs to install their looks and and things changed based upon times in the story so that they were editorializing with their look through different chapters of our characters' lives. Filmed with beautiful Panavision T, T series anamorphics and Petzval lenses. Uh, the Petzval lenses were for Martin Scorsese's 1917 Bell and Howell camera that they used for the newsreel footage. So they wow. used an actual I'm antique so camera happy. that Marty owns. Um, <laughs> so pretty darn neat. And that's kind of what I got off of my uh, out of my uh, very quick research.
1: I'm so glad you did it because I I haven't. <laughs>
2: You, wa- you watched some movies more recently than I, but I I did some of the technical stuff. Oh, that's stuff. really I, wonderful. So-
1: For me, again, it's Rodrigo's ability to... Um, it's really interesting. He can switch very seamlessly between... Um, there are moments where it's very movie lighting, where the light is coming from I don't know where and I don't care because everyone looks great, or from the tops of things where in that time period, it probably wouldn't have been that way, but it totally makes sense to me watching it. And then there are other moments where I feel like that is just beautiful Northern light coming through a giant window. And of course they both could have been created and, and, you know, a skilled cinematographer can make you believe those things. Um, It's, it's gotta be so interesting working with Scorsese on, shot design too and the way things are going to cut together he's it's it's always you know there's always going to be some moment in a scorsese film where you something moves really quickly or succinctly and it was just planned that way that you know it's just been cut together frame frame accurate which i always appreciate because i think that's having started as an electrician and gaffer i i always go to the lighting first but then um now directing i think a lot about designing how shots are going to cut together and, um, and the conversation that needs to be with your cinematographer so that it all moves as seamlessly as his films always seem to do. That's, and that's a collaboration. That's a real fun thing to watch. (laughs) It's
2: funny in ways I have less to say than I did about Conte. Um, It's, it's a more traditional movie in certain ways um i very much i i I felt as if um the telling of the tale was primary
1: yeah you're in very capable hands yeah yeah
2: and um you know that that it allowed uh to really play with the notion within photography of increasing contrast increasing pressure increasing uh personal devastation as as the movie goes on so you know that that's to me where um, you know, someone like Marty has very definite shot signs, and, and so does Rodrigo Prieto. No, no, yeah, um, but uh, but within that, I, I found that that tonality to be the major contribution. It it, it was a very um, it felt for all that's a really grand story, and there's been discussion about um, it's it's not Osage people telling it. Um, it's an, an older, brilliant Italian American director um but uh but there's a real just naturalism that i think is really based on rodrigo prieto's work I, I found the acting wasn't as natural as the look of the film and the and the design
1: yeah i agree with you
2: you know I, the the technical and and uh, art, art artiste side of it in ter- like i said with production design and, and costumes that to me um really furthered the story more than the performances sadly for the most part, but that's a whole other thing. I don't know. To...
1: Yeah. And I, I also don't know if the, I was thinking uh, about the runtime and I don't know if it would be as effective because I know this was another big topic of conversation about the movie, but I feel some of what the movie is doing so effectively is showing you how uh, people can be just ground upon for, for a long, long time. And that, Pressure is just as evil as if someone comes up and shoots someone in the head with a gun, which they're doing anyway. So it's like, you know, it's, it, it's this shocking level of, you know, racism. Yeah. Taking what you want. And, um, and that is absolutely, it's interesting to see someone who started in gangster movies um, do this because you're like, oh yeah, they're, they're gangsters.
2: Yeah. It, but, but it's a gangster movie where the gangster, the gangsterism, the gangsters themselves aren't the lead impetus. Almost, we're in this world that they've there's been an incursion into this world.
1: The government sponsoring their being gangsters, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, which makes it a, a, a truly great American story. Yeah, in a way, a real American movie.
1: I'm with you too. That especially with some of the other movies we're going to be talking about, and and El Conde. Um, I also felt like, okay, this is a beautifully, perfectly handled movie, and some of these other things are out of their, their minds. <laughs> and um, that's an interesting—that's an interesting thing, right? Oftentimes, the showier thing will get the the most praise. So I am glad it got nominated for cinematography. Totally, beautifully natural,
0: and also nominated for costume design and for production design. And so the idea of the collaboration that right? yeah. cinematography both showcases and it sounds like benefits from the work that was done in those areas as well.
1: Yeah. It's a real beautiful unified front.
2: Absolutely. Really important. It makes the day go much better. That's for sure.
0: Well, the third movie on our list is Maestro cinematography by Matthew Libatique.
1: Maddie. So one of my favorite shots in this uh, is when they, they first meet as a couple and there's a ghost light on a stage and it gets staged the way every single one of us would want it to get staged, and the light gets used. and 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 I'm sure David will tell us the technical aspect that makes the light do what it does between them. And then they get really close to each other, and they each have a downside shadow side kick in their shadow side eye that I am pretty sure could not come from the light that's in the shot. And this is what makes a fantastic cinematographer because you buy it. It's beautiful. And it did not come easy. Like the, the cast has to do the exact right thing. Um, There has to be this collaboration, you know, it helps when your lead actor is the director <laughs> um, and it, and is obviously strongly collaborating with, with a talented cinematographer. So that, uh, I'll be thinking about that shot for a long time. And I and if I see him at the ASC awards, that's the thing I'm going to ask him about.
2: <laughs> this movie,
1: um, I, I
2: don't have a ton of technical s- stuff about it in a way, although um, I was fascinated by the, the, the show starts with a 133 classic aspect ratio. And it, it, it's all kind of, uh, and the story of young Leonard and the young love story and the love story are told in that aspect ratio, and then uh, suddenly, spoiler alert, uh, Mrs. Bernstein passes away, and all of a sudden we're in a one eight five aspect ratio where the world is wider and he's more alone in a frame than he had been before, and and I thought that was really fascinating storytelling in a about a man whose passions were in so many different places clearly their relationship was was the core and her acceptance of him but uh but i i found that to be a really beautiful um piece of visual storytelling the black and white of it as a memory and the color as you know current and and uh as i get muddled um the uh, the thing that really got to me in this uh movie was the level of motion and frenetic nature of movement, which mimicked the character was perfectly appropriate. It felt like to me. And um, the energy that this man clearly had, I remember watching him conduct as a kid. Oh, cool. One of the most compelling people I never met who, you know, I had been exposed to as a young person. And um, in this movie, I, I, I thought it was beautifully shot. It's a very crisp, exquisite, looking movie Uh, that light in the eyes is exactly exactly a you know an example of that there's been a lot of criticism of this movie at times and of Bradley Cooper uh, but I I thought he was great and I thought I thought the makeup the prosthetic was natural and really well handled I thought I thought this movie had just fantastic performances overall and and really drew drew me in as an audience member I was less, I was far less concerned with the technical aspect of this movie when I watched it than I was with just taking in the world and the, the, the pace and the performance of it, which is a great sign of good cinematography in a way, because I wasn't really even thinking about it.
1: And, and there's lots of technical things happening. I feel like there's also this very overriding, and it's interesting because they they must have had prepped it thinking in, in a continual time scale from the course of his life, but they're bouncing back and forth and the other thing I thought that was really interesting is like the contrast and color palette shifts from when he's being interviewed at the piano in that kind of era. And, and then when they're first living together, you know, they're married and, and the ha- the house has this kind of softness in the contrasts and in some of those shots. And I was, Yeah. It's fun to be at lost in the film and then have those filmmaker, fellow filmmaker moments. You're like, well, wait a minute. They're, oh my God. Okay.
2: Totally. <laughs> yeah. well, it's nice to still have a sense of wonder and enjoyment. You know, that, you know, there are, there are times where I just watch something and take it in. And there are other times where it becomes more, I become more wrapped in it. And this was a movie that did it for me in a lot of ways. I thought it was, for, I thought it was more successful than the word on the street had it at a point.
1: It's right. Yeah having seen him yourself must have, I mean, that's got to add a layer that, that only a few people, you know, I guess a few thousand people, but it's still like, I never got to see him live. So that that's pretty amazing. Yeah.
2: We, I I mean, I remember when he debuted uh, his huge composite mass when he, when he first, we went to a a showing of that and the, just the, I, I just so impressive and such a, such an amazing thing to be exposed to as a kid. I have to say, yeah, it's, uh, pretty special. So this movie took me back in a lot of ways, and and I, I enjoyed the, I, I enjoyed the honesty and kind of uh, the flippant, uh, entertaining manner in which they handled his sexuality. I thought that you know, I thought as a, as a movie, it it had a lot to offer, um, both visual and, and ideationally. I just it worked
0: for me.
1: And it's about creativity, which you know, yeah. as, as fellow creative folks. It's always nice to watch.
0: So I have a question for you guys to carry over from another episode. So when we did coverage of the sound nominees, we were fortunate enough to have Steve Morrow on the show. He was the production sound mixer on Maestro. And one of the things he brought up was that they recorded all of the instruments live on the day. And so an anecdote he told that I'd like to get your guys' take on was that the way that everything was mic'd meant that the orchestra could not be adjusted to put a camera in a new place or to get a close-up or to, you know, lay down dolly track. To move the mics would have been delays of hours in between. And so, consequentially, they had to adapt to that situation. It came up on the early days and obviously played out through through the shoot because there's a lot of a lot of music scenes in it. I'm curious, as cinematographers, you're approaching a scene like that. What other challenges are there for you or where does your head go? I mean, there's,
1: there's this thing that I loved in um, where in the type of films where I first started, where you'd have these super honest conversations and they couldn't be greedy. They had to be about the whole film, right? Like on girl fight, we ended up saving a bunch of money by buying like this old Fuji film stock that was going out of print. Like they stopped making it and it was only in 400 foot loads and it saved us a ton but we gave half of that savings to the production designer who is dumpster diving for stuff <laughs> for the film. And, and it didn't bother me. It made total sense. Like you really had that sense of all being in it together. And I feel even on something as big as that movie, if those conversations are starting early and Bradley's overseeing them, then you've just got to get on board. And, and um, you know, there's so many times the, that restricts us ends up being the thing that everyone starts talking about because you know the solution you find is but i mean there's got to be moments where it also drove maddie out of his mind you know (laughs) of course and
2: i I think you know it is it is about finding the truth for everyone so you can succeed in as many of your goals as possible but when you brought up this question skid i kept thinking about um particularly certain key grips over the years I've worked with, who would have been filled with fury about (laughs) the, about this, because there is that dance between certain departments and sound often gets the, uh, the short end of the stick. Um, you know, so with that, I, I, think it's, it is, it's, it's, it's about, I think, to succeed in this business, better to be solutions oriented and, um, and part of, part of the job is overcoming obstacles. So you know you, you figure it out and, and at least that one you knew about before you started, <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, you know, on a TV show when you have you know when you have seven days prep, it's one thing. But you know this was a, this movie was being discussed for a very long time. So you know within that, I would hope that there was an ability and a, a friendly process by which to come to the solutions.
1: Well, it must have worked out. They got both their nominations. Yeah. yeah. Then you swear about it when you're making dinner that night. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> could have just gotten that rack from that horn player to that violinist if, if I could have moved them.
0: <laughs> All right, the fourth film on our list is Oppenheimer, cinematography by Hoyte van Hoitema. Am I saying that right? Are you even close.
1: I think hey, okay. it's Hoita. yeah. Hoyte.
2: With what we just discussed, Patrick brought up uh, budgetary sacrifices. The first thing I'll say about Oppenheimer was it was originally scheduled to be shot in 85 days. But when they needed to build Los Alamos and they found out what the bill was going to be for the production designing of it, uh, the schedule went from 85 days to 55 days in order to pay for the building of that huge set.
1: You're, you've just lost as many days as every indie film has been shot within, you know, it's <laughs> unbelievable. It's such a blow.
2: And within that, I, I will say, I I'm, I'm such a Christopher Nolan fan. And, uh, but I feel as if in this movie, that decision for all that I understand it, I do feel like it kind of showed here and there, um, that the speed at which they had to work. And I think they're probably sacri- clearly there were sacrifices made because of it. And, um, and I just, I think also part of it too, is that the shooting with IMAX cameras with the size and bulk of them, and then reducing your shooting schedule so that you have less time to deal with such a huge cumbersome object. I mean, certainly they, they had the right equipment to deal with it, but I feel like, um, I felt as if I could feel the camera and I could feel the camera size at times in the movie. And I, I don't, and certainly it had the advantages um, of giving you these incredible fall-offs in focus and um, incredible um, intimate sense of people's faces in a way that you know, the large format will give you. But, um, but there were times it felt like camera movements were clunkier than they might have been. I, I don't know, there was just something, it felt like it was fighting, the movie, For I loved it, but I th- it felt like it was fighting itself technically sometimes, it was weird. Um, if I, and I don't know if anyone else in the world will agree with me, (laughs) but it's, but it was, it was an interesting thing with, with this movie for me.
1: What I, I didn't feel that, but I also thought that what's so intriguing to me about the film is so much of it is shots that we're always fighting against in television. You know, like we, there is no no television or any cinematographer would willfully go into that room that they spend so much time in i mean that room is tiny now i'm hoping it was a set and they could blow out a wall but right but or every wall but um what i loved is and and this is where i think koetz is very gifted is um the complexity of um nuance that makes you feel like oh they, um, you know, it happens with deacons too, where you're like, oh, he just gets lucky all the time with his light. Like it just (laughs) happens to look great. And then, then you're like, well, that, that can't be. And, and it's funny that the shot of Oppenheimer in being interviewed, that is that slightly wider lens than it should be. That became the poster. If, if you were to be asked to recreate that. You're not gonna just put someone by a window. Like there's a lot of stuff going on in those shots. Without a lot of things going on in those shots, without you ever feeling like, oh, I'm seeing three shadows, and I, I, you know, I know where all the lights are, and I know the quality of the lights. You're, you're like, I, I just feel I'm in this room. That you know, when you look out a window you see different colors and like the light that's hitting me right now, part of it looks the way it looks because there's snow on the ground here in Albuquerque. And like that kind of thing keeps striking me when I, when I watch this. And, and um, the other thing too, is I, I, um, I watched clips again. I, I went through it again last night with my screener thing and turned the sound down. Cause you know, Nolan's so, good and or too loud depending on everyone's preferences Um, with the sound design um, being another strong component of the emotion you're feeling. And so I love watching scenes that work on me with the sound off and just, and it lets you see the cinematography a little better. And I keep getting impressed by how beautifully rendered these quote unquote, very simple shots are. And, and so, even if they are being rushed, I don't feel they're ever rolling without themselves feeling like they're ready to roll. I'm sure that's
2: true. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Yeah.
1: And, and I heard some clip with Downey talking, Robert Downey Jr. talking about um the moment where like he realizes he's not going to get confirmed. And they did, you know, like 40 takes of it or something. Yeah. And, and he was like, Oh, I think, I, I think I got it. And Christopher Nolan was like, yeah, you might have, but. And Downey Robert Downey Jr. said this thing of like, but we didn't he wasn't rushing. It wasn't like he had to move on. And he was like, I I think you have better in you. And and Robert Downey Jr. in this clip talked about everyone has their threshold of laziness, and Christopher Nolan's is non existent. You know, it's like <laughs> he is going to keep working at it.
2: Yeah. He uh he is without a doubt as devoted. To his craft as anyone we would we could meet. It sounds like in terms of his own personal discipline, what he asks of himself, even in terms of I mean, there were a lot of mentions. Uh, so Killian Murphy actually mentioned um, in an interview that he's he has that Nolan has two bathroom breaks a day at the same and they're time. timed. <laughs> yeah, eleven o'clock and six o'clock, and I I, I mean, and I it, it that's a very kind of old school. Um, the sacred, the sacred grounds of church of filmmaking, and I get it. Um, at the same time, uh, there's there's part of me which says, as human beings, and I, I don't think he made other people live by this discipline. But you know, when you got to go, you got to go. And you know, as a, if you if you have to, you know, as a focus puller, you want to be in a place where you're physically and mentally ready. You're as an operator, and and sometimes that means accounting for your humanness you know in the most basic of senses and I found that really fascinating that that he he could put his that side of his animal existence aside you know I it's it's fascinating to me so uh,
1: I mean I definitely want sets to have his version of no phones <laughs>
2: yeah like, everybody in the glass all the time it's, yeah. it's it, it drives me crazy makes me nuts. It's true yeah um let's see what what else do I have here um they had a special probe lens made for micro shooting. Uh, they did a lot of, uh, and they they broke they broke that lens because they were doing all sorts of subatomic fantasy like stuff, and they were spinning marbles in this chamber. And the probe lens got in too close. The the in, in fact one of the one of the camera people warned we're getting too close, and, and they pushed in more and they smashed, uh, they smashed the lens a bit with marbles as they were doing this kind of wild atomic imaging um you know so i mean they they took some pretty interesting chances it feels like um they shot on on modified lenses um mostly because some of the lenses needed uh pieces of metal shaved off the back in order to make sure that they wouldn't hit the spinning mirrors of the panavision 65 um you know so that i mean they had all sorts of things to account for in terms of the the demands of you know the larger format that's amazing but uh but they did in 55 days. (laughs) Strauss was filmed with wider lenses, closer up to to magnify um, his his own manic persona in a sense. And and Oppenheimer was done with longer lenses to project the sense of pressure he was under in a lot of ways and to close the world off. So he was more insular and and in his own head more. Um, I wish they, from what I understand, I mean, they had him. They showed him making a lot of drinks and drinking, but he was—I mean—that was I a—he mean, was, was a major drinker, and uh, I would have been interested in seeing a little bit more of that self-abuse as part of the movie storytelling-wise. But, but within that, there's almost
0: only so much time in a day. Yeah, that's, or on the schedule. That was that was the other 30 days. There was more of that probably. Yeah,
1: When they cut exactly. when they cut it out. The thing that struck me when I saw it in the theater the first time was how felt like little like a series of four minute trailers like there's this energy to it that's these tiny little bites and then that was the only kind of critique i had was like at at a certain moment for me to think about it means it's so like they popped me out for a second that that was happening and then i was like oh but that is kind of the genius too because if this is done too dryly you're really going to disconnect right like Nolan is getting you this close to this character so that you you stay invested. And 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 think about what he's made all this drama about. A bunch of it is about a a you know a procedural government thing that most people don't even think about when they think about Oppenheimer. And I think that's what was so interesting about the movie.
2: The other thing I think we should touch on, which I'm always fascinated with in Nolan's movies, is his um his great devotion to practical special effects, um, his avoidance of digital work of of visual effects, and having everything um, done in a practical, actually physical manner. I mean, that's that's classic movie making. And and you know, like you know, it's it's one of those funny things where I you know, Patrick, I don't know about you, and Skid, I don't know about you, but every once in a while something happens, like a lamp broke in the house the other day, and it was just a bolt in the attachment and and i just kind of took a i I took a paper clip and folded it up and made something that would just close it up until we got another bolt and my wife was like how do you think of that i said that's just movie making you know (laughs) it's just you know that that type of practical thinking it's very attractive to me um i love i love those type of solutions and and that type of thinking i admire it a lot
1: yeah me too i mean i i initially wanted to get in to go work at ILM back when it was all miniatures and stuff like that. That's how I ended up going to film school and forgetting mm-hmm. about working at special effects. But it was that era of special effects that was combining all these, you know, 30s and 40s matte paintings with you know the beginning of robotic controls of things. And I was like, oh yes. <laughs> I mean, I am the other side of this computer is my 16 millimeter projector. <laughs> with the John Ford print in it and the covers off because when the covers are off, the sound works. And when the covers are on, the sound isn't working and I don't know exactly (laughs) what to do to fix it, but I'm looking at a bunch of gears and stuff right now. (laughs) Oh my God.
0: The final film on our list is poor things cinematography by Robbie Ryan.
2: I'll say right off the bat, this is my favorite movie of all the nominees. Um, I, i just found it to be such an incredibly um trippy ride um robbie ryan's work was so clean in this movie it felt like to me um the wide shots i'm still i only saw the movie once about three weeks ago but um the quality of light and lighting in those wide shots blows me away wide shots are really hard yeah to do with Real texture and feel, and and uh, with these imaginary bending sets, and uh, I ke- and and rarely do I I, I, I have to watch again because I kept on saying, well where 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 the-? and the lights were mostly out the windows I'd say, but but like where I just and how many because how much stuff do a- you
1: need to use the lens?
2: Yeah, what a crisp, vivid image, and so hard to to make some. I mean. They were using a four millimeter lens on this show. They were using a sixteen millimeter lens on the Arri camera, on the thirty-five Super thirty-five camera, um, and and celebrating the vignetting on the outside. Um, but they they basically the the work on this movie was pretty much wide lens work almost always, even in close ups. And I thought really just ex, exquisite, you know, and it it combines like the oldest school of old school lenses with LED backdrops. And they were designing for the LED backdrops. They were taking, they had artists who were experts in f- still photography of fluid dynamics, of mixing various fluids together and getting the swirls of them. And that's how they made their skies in this movie. Um, I mean, I, I just thought uh, the, animal, the primitive animal VFX and the celebration of how primitive they were, um, it's to me just the most fascinating combination of old and new. I uh, just really enjoyed that.
1: I got to watch the um sizzle reel for the uh visual effects people and and that's really fun because they they talk about photographing miniatures and then combining it with photographing the miniature on the LED volume, um having the animals walking on the actors, like the actors are laying there and the different animals, the pigs and the ducks, and are all are walking on them and then they're combining them and then they're adding the stitches. But it's this um which I feel like you can always tell when there's this mix of what, all right, at what point does it make sense? Does it help us to be practical? And then how do we take over in, in the post effects? And then, and then how does that all combine to be a unified vision? Um, I, I, uh, I kept getting pulled out by this, the super wide angle, mm. um, circular lens, because I was trying to figure out I didn't have the sense that I have with the David Lynch movie of when I don't understand something, I still know there's a thread holding it together. And I know I've since read all the different logics of when they would use that lens and what for, mm-hmm. and, and I don't, and I didn't get it. And that, that can be fully on me. I I know they went in with an intention, but it kept popping me out and then the pets bowl would show up with that beautiful, swirl on the autofocus edges and i was just like in heaven i was like oh more of this please
2: yeah <laughs> no, really really something um, this was a movie that uh that robbie ryan operated himself um, which he did an incredible job there, yeah. some, they also used some zoom lenses and they were very intricate changes in zooms that that if you as he said in an article you know if i they were really subtle and it's all on me and if i blew it we had to start all over again and um you know i I was i was really impressed i i love operating um but as a cinematographer i love having operators there's nothing like getting your hands on the wheels though and doing a shot yourself or or and messing around it's the greatest but but um I am a big believer in camera operators. Not, not that I'm saying there was a mistake made here. That's, you know, everybody has their way of working in their personal choices. Um, but uh, it was, I was fascinated by the demands that uh, Robbie Ryan in ways put on himself aside from anything. Cause he could have, I'm sure he could have said, I really would like to have an operator here.
1: Oh yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you know, but, uh, but really, really well
1: done. But there's that thing where you, you, you know, the, as a, dp the only people i get tend to get jealous of are the every now and then the camera operators because they're in the scene with the actors they're right there with the actors and and now as a director i i i hate i don't want to ever yell over a set wall i want to be in the set with everyone totally that's 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 where it's happening and the operators are always in the set with everyone (laughs) personally i think it's the best job on a movie set i mean i love cinematography i'm
2: proud of my work i love directing um, but there's just something about operating, which is so quintessentially filmmaking. I mean, the camera's in your hands. for
1: that. It's very Zen. Like you, you, and, and it's interesting. Like I always feel like um, all, all operators and ACs are like major league pitchers and, and, and they can have an off day. And then you have to be really careful with how you make those adjustments. Cause yeah. just like a performance, just like an actor, they, you need them to trust their gut. Even if their gut is telling them to do something that's making you insane,
2: yeah, and yeah, it, it is. It, <laughs> operating is all about being clutch. It's, it, yeah. it's all about being clutch, and it it's uh, you know having you know, and it takes me back to the feelings I had in high school playing basketball. You know, just um, oh, the, that, that notion sense. of you know being being right in the middle of it and being responsible for good things happening, and and as part of the team, um, it, it definitely my favorite job on a set.
1: Yeah i mean poor things i just kept chuckling at certain moments because i just loved the world i was seeing and what was yeah. happening and mark ruffalo being a you know an idiot. how
2: fantastic yeah. <laughs> and the whole forensics you know surgical side of it and um in a way this crazy celebration of damage you know, yeah you know, it's just spiritually i just I, I i it was quite a lark and um you know, I, I felt it held together I, and I like, I like movies that, that have that sense of adventure. I felt like this, this was going off. I, like El, El Conte too. They both took you on these incredible journeys that um, really hadn't been experienced in ways before.
1: That's exactly right. Like you're, you're like, like, Oh, this is something I hadn't even thought to think about. And now I'm, I'm soaking in it. Right. Like it's yeah. surrounding me.
2: And I understand it.
1: Yeah. 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 Which is shocking. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, uh, you know, and and in that cinematography is a big part of getting you to a place where you can, it's believable where, you know, that's one of our biggest jobs to me as cinematographers is um, creating a sense of three dimensions in two and um, giving the audience that texture and information they need to subscribe to the premise of your story. They're incredibly important parts of the art, you know, of the art form
1: it's it's unique it's moving pictures you know it's a unique art form and you're in control of image and time too I, i love that aspect of it that you know you're also um the way the shots get designed and delivered and 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 i the other thing i i just adore which is that paperclip thing you were talking about earlier is just out of frame can be madness. Who it knows? Yeah. yeah. It does not matter. Control I only chaos. care about what is one millimeter, like just from the frame in. Everything else can, <laughs> can be bonkers. It's true. <laughs> which which makes poor things even tougher because that frame is so huge. <laughs> yeah, where's all the junk. Oh, Yeah,
2: totally. Exactly. Oh, that's funny.
0: While I've you guys break these down, are there any other 2023 movies you'd recommend on account of the cinematography?
2: I have to say, I really thought Barbie was a very well-shot movie. It was exactly right. It was perfectly photographed. For for, for that film. I I admired the work there a lot. Uh, It's so clean. People, you know, know, as as far as, you know, aesthetics and people need it, it's it's a movie about plastic dolls, you know, the, the, the flawless, bright presentation of the actor. I mean, it was really, really, really nice. Um, I also have to say for all that I found it kind of flawed in certain ways, I really liked how Ferrari was shot. The car races were, were photographed. Uh, it was acknowledging a bygone era in a way. It, it felt like it was shot back in the day technically you know as opposed to just being propped that way it felt like the the way the the kooky the zooms in the middle of the racing and stuff and and all these different things which were so much a product of the 50s 60s early 70s filmmaking are very much incorporated in this movie and i really liked that flavor
1: i am a sucker for asteroid city i i, I mean I'm, I'm a wes anderson i just love falling into his worlds and um the palette bob yeoman shot it as as he has many of mr anderson's films and um so i just i just kind of giggled the whole time because i just like being in those worlds and and they're so com there's a complete completeness to them that you know you don't have to agree with the vision but it's 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 perfectly done (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, nice. I'll definitely be checking that out. I, I, I love Wes anderson's movies too. So
1: yeah, yeah. He he's playing. He plays again with the. He he seems lately to be de- enjoying these like little offshoots to other part. Like, let me tell you about this, and then you're in another type of presentation. Sometimes even animation, right? In the the French Dispatch, um and I just yeah, I had a, I had a fun time watching that movie. Nice.
0: Patrick, did you watch his shorts on Netflix, the ones based on the Rowan Dahl stories?
1: I started to, and then and then something, dinner happened or something. So I need to go back. I'm in the same boat. Yeah. I think they're at the
2: <laughs> I think front so. of my list for sure. Yeah. Uh, loving Rowan Dahl's short stories aside like from
0: anything. It's the perfect combination, it seems
1: to me. Yeah. Yeah. He's the one to do it. That, yeah. that team is the team to do it.
0: All right. Well, on that note, guys, we're going to call it a wrap. As always, a pleasure having you guys here. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You find my contact info at our website, below the line oneword.biz, that's B-I-Z. This is the back half of our Oscar series. Seven down with five more to go. I hope you're enjoying these insights as much as we enjoy sharing them. Closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. To all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line.